Welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are covering the Ray Bradbury story, The Velt. This was originally published in the Saturday Evening Post in 1950, but it was under a different title. It had the title, The World the Children Made, though just only one year later, it was printed in Bradbury's collection, The Illustrated Man, with its new title, The Velt, and that's the book where we read this. And I was really excited when this story made it past the post in our Patreon vote, because I have a really fond memory of listening to The Illustrated Man audiobook on an Appalachian Trail backpacking trip I did with my niece uh, three or four years ago. This story was not our favorite, but it was far and away the creepiest. Yeah, it is a chilling story. There is a lot going on here. And I was surprised too by how much I enjoyed this story because in the past when I've read Bradbury, I haven't been totally sold on him. But this story made me really want to revisit him as a writer, especially in you know the genre that you and I work in, Glenn. So I was really excited for this. I was excited for the way it opened me up to reading more Bradbury, which I'm definitely going to do now. Yeah, well, me too. And coincidentally, I, I guess as we're recording this episode, we've been having a big conversation on the Gene Wolfe side of our, our forum. Uh, and Ray Bradbury has come up uh, in a big way there. So I think we're going to be doing more Ray Bradbury somewhere on the network in the future. But before we get into this story, uh, we do want to let people know about a new Patreon goal that we've recently added. Over on Lower Decks, Valerie and I cover Star Trek Discovery, and then we also do the occasional old school Trek bonus episode. But there is another new Star Trek show coming to town in just a very few months. That's right. Uh, Star Trek Picard is coming out, and I'm pretty excited about this show. It might actually push me over into getting the CBS the CBS All Access subscription. So far, all that's released is the trailer. We have something about Picard years after he's retired or been pushed out of the Federation, back on his old family vineyard, and it seems to me it's going to be like a one last job type of story or some some sort of or some sort of story where he's been responsible or the nexus of some big event that the Federation has to take care of. I think it looks really cool. It's being written by Michael Chabon, which is really exciting. He's a great writer. Uh, And that's coming out later this year. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Yeah, I mean, we are all, I think, extremely excited about Star Trek Picard. I mean, look, it's Picard. But then, yeah, that trailer, uh, it's its all mysteries, no answers. It doesn't really tell us anything at all about what the story is going to be. But yeah, just those beautiful shots of that vineyard had me pretty geeked out, pretty delighted for this. So what we've done is we've decided to add it to the Lower Decks beat if we can get the crowdfunding that will let us take away some time from our other paying work. So if you're excited about that show, too, then please consider helping us reach that goal by joining us on Patreon. We're really excited and really grateful for all of our Patreon supporters. We have a lot of other bonus episodes on there, a lot of cool stuff. And supporting us on Patreon gets you a lot of awesome perks. So thank you to everybody who already supports us and makes this podcast possible. But now let's get into the Velt. Glenn, how does this story open? Yeah, pretty excited about this one as well. Our story takes place sometime in the not-too-distant future. Now, we don't get a date, but that does not matter. It is an America very much like our own, just with some seemingly minor technological advances. The story is about a family. It's a, a typical American family of the 1950s. So mom and dad, son and daughter. This family, the Hadleys they're called, uh, they live in a state-of-the-art house. It costs them a fortune, but they're affluent, though we never find out where their money comes from. And besides that, nothing is too good for their kids. And this house does 
everything for the Hadleys. There's no need to bathe the children. The house can do that. There's no need to tie your shoes or paint your own picture. The house can do that. Need to get to the second floor? No need to take the stairs. The house's vacuum tube will suck you right up and set you down in no time. And this sounds great. You have a, a nice, comfortable home with no need to do anything to take care of it or its occupants. Everything is done for you by the house. But Mrs. Hadley, Lydia, is beginning to think that actually it's not that great. She feels useless. And we should say that there's an assumption here of the 1950s that affluent women don't work outside the home. That's something for poor people and Russians. But with this house, she also doesn't have to work inside the home. And so she really has nothing to do and no need even to care for her own children. And she says, the house is wife and mother now and nursemaid. But she also notices that Mr. Hadley, George, is also feeling this way. With no maintenance to do, no lawn to mow, he smokes a little more every morning and drinks a little more every afternoon, and he needs a little more sedative every night. We get almost all of that information uh, within the first two paragraphs of this story, and, and this has to be one of the most efficient story openings I've ever read. Right away, we are introduced to the conflict and the conceit of this story. We have the well-to-do parents. They're concerned about their children. They live in a smart home, and the imagery really drives home the fact that the parents and children both kind of live in different versions of a nursery. Um, And the nursery is where a lot of the action of this story takes place. We learned that, Glenn, as you pointed out, George is a little disconnected from his family life. He really doesn't take his wife that seriously. And we're going to see in a moment that he treats her like she's sort of a hysterical woman, while, as you pointed out, He ignores his own neuroses. The way that the house takes care of him has made him uh, kind of on edge and needing more drugs just to get through the day. So I just think Bradbury is uh, firing on all cylinders here. The opening of the story is brilliant. Yeah, there's a great observation here by Bradbury about this dynamic here where the wife is saying... I know we have a, a, a lucky, privileged life, but I'm filled with ennui. And he's like, well, don't worry about that. And then she points out, well, you have th- at least three substance abuse problems. <laughs> right? right? Right. Yeah, it's it's insane. And, the, and one thing we'll talk about in the discussion is the way that, you know, technology is really disintermediating this fam- familial bond, this reality that these people live in. Yeah, right. So let's get to the the actual plot of the story. So even while Lydia is full of ennui and and feeling useless and and knows that her husband is too, this is not what is really deeply disturbing her. What really bothers her is this nursery. And this is not just any nursery. It's not just a room full of toys for the kids. This nursery is as high-tech as the rest of the house. In fact, it's more high-tech. Basically, the nursery is a holodeck, right? This is straight out of Star Trek, or perhaps Star Trek The Next Generation is straight out of this story. So its its walls and its its floor and its ceiling are uh, immersive video panels, and it's it's got a, a sound system, and it even has a smell system, which is very cool, all designed to make you think that you aren't really in a square room in a square house but are really in an endless landscape somewhere. It can take you to, to Paris. It can take you to the jungle. It can take you to, to any place you want to be, or at least make you feel like you've been transported there. And 
on top of that, the, the nursery isn't a pre-programmed video game type of thing, right? And this is really where it differs from the holodeck. Instead, what it does is it responds to the, the thoughts and, and feelings and moods of whoever is inside of it and conjures up a suitable environment. So this is some pretty serious technology here. And this sounds pretty awesome. I, I would like to have one of these rooms in my home for sure. But the problem is the children. They keep summoning up the same location. It's a veldt, a, a Southern African grassland. And the story really opens with Lydia informing George that she's worried about this. And she takes him to the nursery so that he can see for himself. And even though it is fake, even though they are just inside their house, somewhere in the American suburbs, it feels real. The sun is hot. They can smell the grass. And off on the horizon, the lions have just finished picking the meat off the bones of a baby giraffe or a zebra. And then the lions move. They're on the prowl and they're coming for George and Lydia. And even the smell of them is overpowering. And Lydia screams in fear and she runs out of the nursery. And George is not far behind her. He's just as terrified of these video lions as, or maybe holographic lions, uh, as his wife is. And out in the hallway, panting and afraid, Lydia now, she just demands that George lock up the nursery for a few days and demands that he forbid their kids from reading anymore about Africa so they won't have any more of the ideas uh, or the thoughts or feelings and moods that are generating this scenario to begin with. And, and finally, she says, those lions can't get out of there, can they? Of course not, says George. Uh, but it's a pretty ominous end to the opening scene of this story and, and uh, might be the question that we need to keep in mind as we continue. Yeah, absolutely. Again, here we see in the text that George is treating his wife like she's just a typical hysterical woman. She's overconcerned about her kids. She doesn't have enough to do. It's not a big deal. And this really hits home in the way that George treats her when they leave the nursery, that his response to her crying at the lion attack is laughter. He thinks it's fun. It's a fun game. And one of the reasons why George isn't so concerned about the way the children are using the nursery, apart from being really disconnected from the reality of his family life, is that he seems to go in there and use it for his own escapist needs from time to time. And we'll see a little later on in the story where he tries to reprogram the nursery with his own uh, desire to see Aladdin's lamp or Paris or something like that. There are a few things I want to point out here, um, important images that return in the story. There are vultures hovering in the veldt, and they also hear these screams, and both of these are going to come back really to haunt us at the end of the story. Bradbury's an absolute master of deploying these images throughout. And something else that he does throughout that is really fantastic is employ vocabulary that we would use to describe cats moving, our house cats, but also lions, tigers, uh, mountain lions, and so on. Anytime anybody or anything is moving anywhere except for up the vacuum tube in this house. So we're constantly hearing about pad footing or, or paws, and, and it's really fantastic. Even when the nursery boots up when Lydia and George walk in, Bradbury calls the machine coming to life purring. So this technological advancement is tied into, uh, through the use of imagery and language, the lion attacking, the lions coming closer and closer, and the fear of the lion attack. It's amazing. 
So the kids, and, and by the way, the, their names are Peter and Wendy, and we're going to actually meet them soon. Uh, the kids are at a carnival, so they are not home for dinner. And, and this gives George Hadley some time to think about the Velt in the nursery. He's amazed at the technology, at, at how this room can pick up the children's telepathic emanations to fill a void in their life, is how he thinks of it. And he relives the experience, feeling the hot sun and smelling the blood Death and death, he thinks. And, and and George silently just wanders away from the dinner table and does not acknowledge that his wife is like asking him where he's going. And he goes to, to look in the nursery again. And what he sees there is a bake oven with murder in the heat. A fantastic line. And he knows that Lydia is right. He knows that the kids have stopped playing in Wonderland or Oz or any of the other imaginative places they used to conjure up. And now they just watch lions kill for fun, which, you know, is maybe not healthy for 10-year-olds, or really maybe for anybody, but perhaps especially not for 10-year-olds. And so he thinks that, hey, what the family needs is a vacation. We need to get away from the house completely for a little while. But before he leaves the nursery, he he does try to set it to something else. He tries to get it to turn off the, the Velt program and, and, and do a different thing, but it will not change no matter what he does. So it's either broken or the kids have actually done something to it. Right. They suspect that Peter has set the machine that way. And we get a brief uh, clipped sentence, a clipped bit of dialogue describing Peter's IQ as being sort of off the charts. Also in this section, as we brought up before, the house is, we see that the house is really just taking over all of the traditional familial responsibilities and everybody's on edge and the children are spoiled and awful. We, you know, have to address the names of the children. Uh, They're Wendy and Peter. This is coming straight out of Peter Pan. The father in this story's name is George, just like the father in Peter Pan is name is George Darling. And this should cue us into that, that this is a kind of alternate story about the creative the creative and destructive imagination of children and how they really do live in truly separate worlds from their parents. And also at this point in the story, we're seeing the power dynamic shift away from the parents and toward the children, that the parents begin to fear that their children have more power than them in this technological world. Right. The the kids come home and, and George asks them about Africa and they lie about it. They pretend they've never made the nursery into the felt before. And Wendy like bursts. She like runs to the nursery to allegedly check it out. But of course, what she's really doing is going in and changing it away from the velt program so that then they can say, ah, yeah, there's no velt in here. And she is able to do this, which means that the reason that George couldn't change it himself is not a matter of a simple malfunction. It's not generically broken but he can't control it and the kids can. And that is pretty terrifying. I mean, by this point in the story, we are already starting to feel very afraid uh, for what is to come. George is furious about this. He sends the kids to their rooms and then he goes in to investigate the nursery and he finds inside an old wallet of his in the corner where the lions had been eating and it's been chewed on and it's covered with saliva and blood smears. But How can that be true? How can that be the case if the lions are merely images on screens? 
I can't imagine what it would be like to be George in this situation. We do get to follow his journey. Uh, we do get to follow his character journey a little bit in this section. And he admits that he hasn't really paid attention to his children. And he's been busy. And I assume he's working from home, whatever job allows them to afford all this stuff. You know, but his feeling is that the house just takes care of too much. It cuts their food for them. I mean, that's just too much responsibility taken away from the individual. And it's almost as though we get this unspoken assumption in the text that the upgrading of the home is a way to maintain a a sense of innocence. It's a way to avoid the knowledge of death. And George thinks about this, and he realizes that that knowledge is unavoidable. And now he recognizes that. His children, like all children, like himself, are curious about forms of make-believe that include killing. But his children have taken it too far. And plus, I think the finding that your wallet has been chewed on by imaginary lions and has been smeared with blood is rightly concerning. That That's not going to put anybody at ease. Yeah, he almost just blows right past it in his mind. In fact, I was quite reminded of the China Melville story we just did, where that's a big feature of the story is the people just ignore details that they can't make sense of, even though they should probably really actually be paying quite a bit of attention to them, that those are the details that perhaps matter the most. And that that's really what George does here. And, you know, he and, and Lydia you know, go up to bed themselves, right? It's, you know, it's nighttime. It's, it's time for everybody to, to go to sleep. And they're talking together in bed as husband and wife. And George muses as well, right, that the children have grown up without any boundaries, without any discipline, because it's not like the house tells them no, and they are just left to their own devices in this nursery, and that maybe that's a a problem, or has has at least become a problem. So he decides to call in a psychologist in the morning, and then he and Lydia hear screaming in the nursery and then a roar of lions. And so they, they know that the children have broken into the nursery, even though he has locked them out of it. And they, they don't do anything about this either. No, the theme of parenting is really raised here in this section of the story. It's almost as if the questions that are being asked are like, what are children for in a world that doesn't require any sort of labor? What are you bringing them up to? to do? What are they going to be for when they're adults? How are you forming them and molding them? And we're going to talk a little bit about this in the discussion. One more thing to point out here, though, before the story is through, we're going to learn about the source of the screams that come from the Velt. And Lydia is really keyed into them because they ring familiar to her. And it's a really creepy bit of writing. So while they don't actually do anything about this in the moment, at least the next morning, George does actually talk with Peter. He he explains that what he wants to do is shut the whole house off. But Peter freaks out about this uh, because this would mean that he'd have to tie his own shoes and do stuff. And he very definitely doesn't want to do stuff. He just wants to look and listen and smell. And he even asks, what else is there to do besides be a a passive observer of things happening in the nursery? And on top of this, he tells his father that he should probably stop thinking about turning off the house if he knows what's good for him. It's It's a clear threat. And it is very creepy the way that Peter says this so casually and then just saunters off to go play his murder games, his killing lion games. Yeah, the dynamic is way off balance here. We see the total shift take place in this scene. You know, early on, it's easy just to assume that these are 
parents who have raised children without limits, and so they're spoiled and bratty. But now we get the sense that these children are dangerous. I, I, I do. I'm really glad you pointed out this line by Peter Glenn. He says, I don't want to do anything but look and listen and smell. What is there to do? This line really sums up the main concern of automation that this story is presenting us with. On some thematic levels, this reminds me of Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut, which was only published two years after this story was published. And the more I thought about it, the more I think that this story, that Player Piano by Kurt Vonnegut is almost an imagining of what type of world the parents live in of this total automation and what that world would be like. And I think there are some real connective tissues between these two stories. But in any event, with the dangerous children lurking about, it's clear that these parents need help. And they're they're going to get some. Now the psychologist is here and he takes one look at the veld in the nursery and he knows that something is very, very wrong with the children. He says that the, the children are angry at their parents because they've been taking things away from them. And they have no idea how to deal with that because they've never had that happen to them before. And he tells George, hey, you've let this room in this house replace you and your wife in your children's affections. This room is their mother and father. It's far more important in their lives than their real parents. And now you come along and you want to shut it off. No wonder there's hatred here. And so the psychologist wants to see the kids every day for a year. He wants to do a therapy session with them every day for a year, but he also wants the Hadleys to turn off their house and he wants them to do that today immediately. And he explains like too many others, you've built your life around creature comforts. As they leave the nursery, George speculates that the nursery itself won't like being turned off. And he wonders if the nursery hates him for wanting to do it. So he's anthropomorphizing this machine here. And the psychologist makes a joke of this, but then they find another material object in there that has blood on it. And this time it's it's Lydia's scarf. So there is an old discarded possession of both father and mother that's got blood on it here in the nursery. So something is not right. This psychologist has has it all sort of figured out. But I mean, I think Bradbury's also wondering if the psychologist is actually useful or effective in this scene. But the psychologist's opening remarks are really fascinating to me because while he's addressing the parents about how their children hate them and the children feel persecuted by them, the parents are wondering how that could be because they've barely interacted with their children. It's up to the house to raise them. And this is perhaps an extended metaphor for the way some people think society or the school system or any type of institution is responsible for raising their children instead of themselves. And and then the further question is raised that how could that, the fact that the house is raising them, lead to such a fascination with violence? It's It's wonderful. And the psychologist's diagnosis here is really just addressing the disease, not the symptoms of the disease, which are consumerism and technology or technological advancements that do too much. The parents let the house raise the children, and that's the problem. To get everything back on track, everyone is going to have to change their lives, and the children are going to be particularly hurt by this. And that's evident by the way the story wraps up. It's pretty clear at this point. In fact, it was clear several points ago that George and Lydia are not 
being particularly active parents, they haven't thought very much about how they want to guide their kids into adulthood and prepare them to be adults, prepare them to be citizens and and members of a community and so on. But to George's credit, even though he is he is being told he has to give up his own personal comforts here, he does not resist the psychologist. He's on board with this. He has turned on his paternal instincts here to protect his kids. In this case, it happens to be from themselves and perhaps also from his own poor decisions of 10 years ago, five years ago, and so on. And so George gets right to work shutting off the house and all of the independent machines in it. And there is a, a great line about this that I just want to read. It's just a... It's just a beautiful passage. The house was full of dead bodies, it seemed. It felt like a mechanical cemetery. So silent. None of the humming, hidden energy of machines waiting to function at the tap of a button. And I think this slide perfectly captures what it's like even just in my apartment with computer fans and the refrigerator and sometimes the dryer going in the laundry room. And I love it. And it makes me yearn for a true... Silence, the type of silence that our ancestors would have you know grown up in right that doesn't exist anymore and 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 what's worst is you know along the lines of George anthropomorphizing the machines uh, as you brought up, Glenn, is that the machines almost think of themselves as alive. The psychologist says no nothing likes to die, no living thing likes to die, so it's almost uh, as if Bradbury is slipping in a societal assumption that these things that people have created as machines to do our tasks, our bidding, to cut our food for us, are somehow alive to themselves. And it's, uh, it's kind of a chilling realization um, that this is the society that people live in. Well, that metaphor may turn out to be literally true as we draw near the end of the story. So as, as much as I love the idea of this real silence, the kids certainly do not. They hate it. And in fact, they are throwing a very serious temper tantrum about it. But George is determined that they are all going to leave today for a vacation in Iowa. But since he does need to get dressed before they go, he decides to allow the kids to play in the nursery for just a few more minutes until it's time to go to the airport. And while the parents are upstairs changing, the kids scream for help in the nursery. And so the parents go running to, to see what's wrong with their kids to, to, to protect them. But once they are in the nursery, the doors slam behind them and lock. And George and Lydia realize that they are alone in the veldt with the lions standing right next to them. And through the nursery door, Peter wants them to promise to not turn this machine off. But George and Lydia don't make that promise. And what happens next is just brilliantly written. So I'm I'm just going to read it. And then they heard the sounds, the lions on three sides of them in the yellow veldt grass, padding through the dry straw, rumbling and roaring in their throats. The lions. Mr. Hadley looked at his wife, and they turned and looked back at the beasts edging slowly forward, crouching, tails stiff. Mr. and Mrs. Hadley screamed, and suddenly they realized why those other screams had sounded familiar. And then we get the last scene. The psychologist arrives at the house a few minutes later because he was the one who was going to give them a ride to the airport. And of course, he wants to know where the parents are, and Wendy and Peter, who are having a picnic in the veld in the nursery, say that, well, they'll, they'll be along soon. And in the distance, the psychologist can see the lions eating something and the vultures swirling and, in fact, swooping down to 
pick at the, the carcasses the lions are starting to walk away from. And then Wendy asks him if he'd like a cup of tea. And that's how the story ends. It's clear by the time we get to the end of the story that the children have had a long-running fantasy about killing their parents. This is the return of the vulture imagery, and we discover with kind of a horrifying uh, epiphany that the source of the screams comes from the children's uh, projection into the nursery about the lion killing their parents over and over again. It's really, really terrifying. Right. And it turns the first scene in the veldt into a real horrifying joke when, you know, it's a funny bit when George is saying, oh, that's probably a baby giraffe or a zebra out there or something. But actually, it's him. It's his own imaginary body, his own hollow deck body that is being picked clean by the lions out there, probably not for the first time. And this is what's going to be his fate. It's it's chilling and very dark. Well, on that note, let's move into our discussion. And the first question I want to ask, which I think we've addressed a little bit in the recap, is just right from the end of the story. And I think it's going to help us illuminate a major theme of this story. So, Glenn, why do the children fantasize so much about killing their parents? What kind of threat do the parents actually represent to the children? There are some details that I left out of the the recap about things that the parents have been saying no to the kids about and and when that started. So it's been a matter of months since the parents have actually told the kids there are some things they can't do. One of the things they wanted to do was take a rocket to New York by themselves at age 10. And he said, no, you're, you're too young to do that. So no. And then there have been a number of other small things, I guess, that he has told them no about. And that seems to be the first time that they have had a constraint, had a, a boundary. And they're reacting very poorly to this. And this is what the psychologist surmises as well, is that uh, because they've never had any boundaries, any constraints, any discipline, uh, they've been completely taken care of, but also seemingly kind of isolated from the world in a lot of ways as well, that being told that there is something they can't have, something they want that is being denied to them, leads to murder, leads to violent impulses, this rage that at first is carried out as a fantasy, and then at the end is carried out for real. Right. I think a core part of the children's problem is that they don't know how the world really works, and nobody is telling them or educating them about that. The the children have really over-identified with the technology that's raising them and have no sense, I think as you pointed out, you know, about isolation about human communities. They don't know where the energy that provides their nursery, their playroom come from, comes from. They don't know about the people who fly them around to circuses. They just consume. That line by Peter, I think, is the most crucial line to understanding the children and maybe the whole world, which is an automated world without labor, that what else is there to do if we take labor away. Even labor that is about making something like art, if we take all of that away and all that's left is consuming and we program everything to give us exactly what we want, really what else is there? And why does it matter if you kill somebody then? It's really chilling stuff. I think I think Bradbury's really on, uh, really hit a sort of theme of 
advanced technology here way before the real issues have arisen in our contemporary society. Right. There's a, a real psychopathy to these these kids in this in in the clinical sense of not having empathy meaning that that it doesn't occur to them that anything they do can affect another person or that other people even have feelings wants desires that they exist in the same way that that they do because they have grown up in a world where the only thing that constitutes an action for them is imagining things inside of the nursery where nothing is actually real. There are no consequences to them imagining anything in the nursery. And so taking that step from imagining it to making it real in the real world, it doesn't seem very much like a step to them. That line is not a line that they're even capable of seeing. Uh, This, of course, is the thing that my generation's parents or my parents' generation feared was going to happen to all of us because of video games. And I think there's clearly some of that here in in Bradbury's story as well. And I I wonder, but don't know how much of that is maybe about TV here in the 1950s being a thing, like how much we're supposed to be thinking about television here. But there is a definite sense that because the kids aren't in any kind of real community and they don't do anything, the world is not real for them, that violence doesn't seem like violence to them. And that's terrifying. Yeah, I'm really not sure what technology Bradbury has in mind. It has to be the combination of like computers and television. I mean, he has like a Skype scene in here, which, you know, I think every science fiction writer had to put in their (laughs) book in the 1950s. Um, But it's strange that you know, for generations, if you look at especially science fiction literature or even not like op-eds and, and big newspapers, that parents have been concerned about the impact that technolo- that new technologies have on their children while pretending that they are exempt from those impacts. And I think one thing Bradbury does really well in this story is show that nobody's exempt from the impact of these sorts of technologies and the parents or whatever generation is ultimately responsible for creating that technology is also impacted by it, even though they think they're a part of it because they made it and it's not part of the world in progress that they're born into. It's, I think it's a great commentary. Yeah, we definitely see that here because there is this subtle bit here that you, you pointed out during the recap that George himself, the, you know, the parent, the dad here, also makes recreational use of the nursery like at night after everyone else has gone to sleep, uh, perhaps because his uh, his sedatives aren't, aren't working because he's still addicted to them. Uh, so he also is using this technology. And I think there's a part of him that doesn't want to give it up himself. I think that's that's part of what's going on here. And that certainly rings true my experience, right? I find myself all the time. So I, I don't allow students to have screens open in my classroom, except in some very specific circumstances. But yet then will find myself looking at my own screen at not in the classroom, but in other times when it's not appropriate, like just while my wife and I are out on a date or something, I will suddenly feel like, oh, I can check the baseball score or I can read my email. So I, I will uh, and have to enforce my own rules on myself there, right? That are good for me to have, that make me a better person to have. But yet, yeah, I too am completely susceptible to the same things that that the generation who have grown up with this are. Absolutely. And I think we haven't even really seen the the full impact of some of these new, you know, like social media technologies that do actually 
isolate people from their natural local communities um, and allow people to really interact with the world through the mediation of a screen. And I think, I wonder personally, being a generation or two above that, being a part of the generation when all of this stuff came up, um, whether empathy is a problem for people two generations beneath me. It's my own concern and question now. I don't feel like I'm old enough to have those concerns, but I think I have them because empathy is super important. Well, I will say that I read a lot about this, actually, because I, I teach and am constantly needing to think about how to reach students. And as a teacher of humanities, as a, a history professor, teaching empathy is one of my number one goals. And there are all sorts of clinical studies that show that yeah, the, the, the generation that is in college now is lacking in empathy compared to previous generations. Now, there's all sorts of, of discussions about why that might be, and, and these include factors like the screens, social media, uh, also just the, the rhetoric, the language that we've used since 9-11, and so on. But I think everybody ends up looking at the technology as being a, a big differentiation. Now, I don't ever fear that my students are going to uh, have me eaten by holographic lions, but uh, but but this is something that I'm cognizant of and, and, and think that, you know, it is my job. This is what my role in the community is, is to, in fact, uh, try to do something about that, try to ameliorate the effects of the, the screens and the things we are doing on the screens, many of which are, are awesome things that we're doing. Yeah, it's a mixed bag. I mean, it's a tool. Technology is a tool and it gets wielded in all sorts of different ways. And obviously, the Velt is a nightmare version of uh, artificial intelligence sort of gone awry. But let's return to the text here a little bit. Why, why is it that Bradbury wants us to think about Peter Pan in this story? Right. Well, Peter Pan is also about kids growing up without any boundaries, any discipline. It is about kids in Never Neverland growing up in an environment with no parents or no adult figures uh, around at all, except for one. And they're the, the bad guys, right? The pirate ship are the, the only uh, adults who are there. And Peter Pan is... A, a comedy. It's meant to be something that is is funny, right? It's for adults to to be thinking about kids. Uh, you know, in a lot of ways, it's for middle aged men or old men, even perhaps, to be reminiscing about their their own boyhoods and reminiscing fondly about the types of adventures they had when their their parents weren't looking, when they could go off on their own during the day, and so on. But there is a darkness to it as well. Uh, and that's the real theme here in Peter Pan, is that it is fun to be without your parents for an adventure or two. But then at some point, you actually want someone to be caring for you. You want someone to make you breakfast and to tuck you in at night and read you a, a story. And that is something here in the real world that, that Bradbury is imagining that the kids don't have in their own home because everything is done for them by this house. So the parents aren't parenting. And so they have turned their own kids, Peter and Wendy, here into essentially the lost boys of, of Peter Pan. These kids are lost. They're in the sense of being isolated. Right. That's a That's a fantastic point. And I think that's exactly what Bradbury wants us to think is that the parents aren't even there to tuck the children in. And, and, and if we really look at the house, this smart house as a sort of extended metaphor for people who believe that society or an institution can raise their children, they're missing the 
point of the close bonds of family and parenthood that there is a home to return to. If the home is the institution, you're not going to get a good outcome from that, I don't think. And I think that's part of Bradbury's moralizing in this story. And this is an issue that Bradbury deals with as well in his weird fiction novel, Something Wicked This Way Comes, which I happen to be reading for another podcasting project at the moment of of recording this episode. And in that story, I won't say too much about it, but in that story, there is a, a real close bond between a father and a son that is a huge part of the of of the story. But this also features a boy who uh, has a best friend and is just running uh, around unsupervised having adventures a lot of the time and of course one of the things that that you know we discover as readers through the course of the book is that of course the father knows they're having the adventures the whole time so they've never been totally unsupervised or done without permission and that that the the love that this dad has for his son and and actually shaping the way that he's having adventures which in part is in, includes the fact that he's the librarian and is giving them the books. And that's a part of this story, too, that this all started with the kids reading about Africa. So this is something that's very much on Bradbury's mind. What is the role of parents in shaping their, their children and, and helping them become people, helping them become adults, members of a, a community? And it's something that he seems to take very seriously. And so he has another, at least one other story where he's showing us a real positive example of how this is supposed to work, how active parenting is supposed to happen. I think even Dandelion Wine is about, you know, the, the summer boyhood adventures. And so this is something that's a really big deal to Bradbury, I think, is what is childhood and what is adulthood. And I look forward to looking for those themes as I dig deeper into Bradbury's work, which I'm really excited to do now. Um, let me ask you a kind of off, off the wall question here, which you're going to have an obvious answer to, but I'm going to challenge you on it. Do the lions actually ever become real or do the children kill the parents or maybe one of the children yeah i actually am not sure about this and i said at the top of the show that one of the things i was really excited about in coming in to do this show is that my niece and i listened to the audiobook of the the whole illustrated man on a a very long road trip we were taking which was great because it's this collection of short stories and we, we talked about each one as they went and that was a question that we ourselves had not actually resolved I think on this read, I'm on the side that the it is some the lions in the room do this and not the kids. But I will say that my initial experience with the story was that it was the kids themselves. So I'm eager to hear what you have to say about this question, Brandon. Well, it can't be both the kids. I think we know that because Peter is on the other side of the door, at least. But Wendy disappears for a little while. And, and I, there are things that Wendy does in this story that make me wonder if she's not the ringleader. For instance, she's the one who goes in and changes the landscape of the room. They think it's Peter who's controlling the imagery in the nursery, but it's Wendy who runs and goes and changes the imagery. When the door shuts behind the parents, it's only Peter they hear on the other side of the wall. But even though the text says that both the children are back in the room when David McCreary shows up, only Wendy is the one who is speaking. She's the the one in charge. So it really makes me wonder, you know, I can't imagine a malfunction of a machine that would let a, a hologram 
generate matter. And so I wonder if Wendy is really the driving force behind this dangerous imagination play and behind the killing of the parents and whether or not she's going to kill the psychologist. And I think that's why she asks the psychologist if he wants a cup of tea, because she is the one that is sort of in control. And I'm have this reading for a, a specific reason, which is <laughs> wrapped up in the question I want to ask next. <laughs> right. Well, I, so Wendy being the one who's actually in charge here, not Peter, I mean, that's a real reading of Peter Pan too, as well, right? So the 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 characteristics of these two characters are perfectly from Peter Pan for sure. And that certainly was the way that I had read it as as well, because really just thinking, well, it is just TV screens. So like, that's just, it's just a, a matter of physics where that's just not a possible thing. But on this reading of it, I paid a lot more attention to some of the, the, the things that Bradbury is doing to at least make us ask this question. Things like have the characters themselves actually raise the question of can the lions get out? It's a question that's raised multiple times. And then also there's this business with the material objects, the wallet and the, and the scarf in the room that have blood and saliva on them. Now, it's probably more likely, actually, that that has nothing to do with the lions. It's not something that the lions have, have ever touched because they are just on a TV screen. So this perhaps is indicative that the kids themselves are doing weird things with blood and saliva while they are in the nursery. That's very terrifying. Bradbury is very careful to separate like the musk of the lion and... Uh, different descriptions that are the result of the technology in the room from plain saliva and blood. He he does separate them in his description. And maybe I'm over reading this a little bit, but I wonder if Bradbury isn't doing something with the shifting norms uh, of gender roles in the household and things like this and things like that in this story as a, as a kind of a project of this story, because we, really easily and carelessly map George and Lydia onto Peter and Wendy as Peter's the dominant one. If Wendy's like her mother, she's hysterical. She's not really that in control. Maybe she notices this. Maybe she notices stuff, but it's not really material to like the plot of the story. But actually Lydia is the one who is in charge of the plot of this story. She kicks it off. She recommends the psychologist. It's kind of this silent role of women um, that I wonder if Bradbury isn't highlighting in this story in a really clever and subversive way. That's an awesome reading of the story. It did not occur to me though. That's absolutely right. I mean, I mean, George is generally just kind of incompetent in this story. And Lydia is at least marginally competent, certainly by comparison to her husband. And I think we have to wonder how would this all have turned out if Lydia had been the one who was had the, the, the agency, the, the power to be making decisions in the family, or at least to have had her voice heard on equal terms. How would these events have turned out? differently and then to see that sort of paralleled actually with Wendy as being the one who's in charge in in the brother sister relationship and is in fact taking the power in this case maybe also murdering her parents and also the psychologist who is going to drive them to the airport later as well that's a, that's a great reading of this and as i said you know i really think this story is about 
one, a critique of automation and robotics encroaching on society, but really also about changing norms. I think we see the change of the value of the the changing value and meaning of labor, the disruption of gender roles in marriage that's sort of coming out of World War II when a lot of women were going to work and were in charge in a lot of ways of how society functioned while a lot of men fought abroad. Um, And this is only 1950. This is not that long after the war when people are kind of reflecting and struggling to shift back into what's expected of them in the household. So I want to ask you, Glenn, what you think Bradbury is critical of in this story and what he's maybe not critical of that contemporary readers like us are critical of today. So, I mean, in other words, what would you change about this story if it were in 10 years ago instead of 70 years ago? This is very much a, a story of the early Cold War. We can we can see that all over the place here, right? It, it, it is, even though it's a story from 1950, it is capturing the essence of, I think, everything that we think of as the 1950s. This is the era of the, the suburban housewife, which is a, a class status, a class marker in America, but is also uh, part of the Cold War. This is something that we hold up as an American value, that we are a wealthy enough state that uh, not each, not both parents have to, to work, that we can ha- allow women to stay home and raise the kids and do the cooking and cleaning. I mean, there's an embedded assumption there that that's something women would prefer to do than to work outside the home. But that was held up as like a real nationalist thing because we would point to Russia where we'd say, well, they're so poor that women have to work outside the home as well. But that's a new thing in the 1950s, though, as it is happening, and we're seeing it in advertising and on TV shows all over the the culture, it's being presented as if it's a, a truism. It's an eternal truism about American culture, even though it's actually a new thing that's happening at that time. And I think you've pointed out some some real criticism of that idea of what a marriage uh, should be or a, you know a, a household should be. But there are this is also the era when TV is becoming a thing and all sorts of manufacturing that has grown out of the the manufacturing of the Second World War that's been retooled for con- consumerism. And so all sorts of products are now coming into the home. Something that we are being sold by marketing companies is convenience and uh, creature comforts, as Bradbury calls them here. And so this is things like having a TV in your home. How awesome would it be to not have to go out to the movie theater to get actors entertaining you on a screen? Uh, This is when we start to get things like uh, uh, frozen dinners and uh, all sorts of of kitchen aids, right? That there's a, a big thing here about easing the the burden of the the labor the and an intense very intense labor that your uh that, that that a housewife has to do in order to to do the food preparation procurement also then the, the cleaning and, and much of the household maintenance contraptions that will ease that but you you asked me another question which was what is not in here what are the concerns that we have about the way technology is is changing us and, and perhaps changing the, the the things that we do in our home, the way that we interact with one another. And of course, social media is the, the, the big thing, I think, for us, right? Or just the internet, maybe, in general. That's the thing that is actually, I think if someone were to write this story today, this would have to be hooked up to the internet somehow, and something would be going wrong with, with that. I don't know what that would be, but it would have to be connected to the internet. 
Yeah, I think you're right. And I think the sorts of things children could access in a home connected to the internet that was also tied to their own dark musings or wonderings about the world they live in would yield way worse results than uh, than than the Velt in this story if children could just uh, if a representation of what a child thought about even about death was represented to them in a way that wasn't that didn't begin in a book that was designed to be read by children, um, but just came straight from the internet. We'd have a, a much darker series of scenes in the nursery than what we get in this story. Right. I can envision that what this story would be, right? Instead of the, you know, so the response of being told you can't go to New York and I'm going to turn off the, the paint machine so you can learn how to paint yourself and hating that wouldn't be to go into the nursery and to be feeling angry. And in this case, right, it's the nursery is just passively responding to that and is actually what shows them this image. I think if we were going to have a story like this today, it would involve like an angry kid uh, in a, a moment of, of of anger, just googling something like, you know, I hate my dad, or uh, you know, I want to murder my dad, or something like that, right? And then being guided slowly, slowly, kind of drawn into some YouTube courses on how to murder your parents and make it look like lions did it or, or something like that. Right, right. And the, and at least George here understands the value of escapism, right? And that that's a big theme of the story as well. Is when George goes in there before Wendy or Peter or the meeting of the minds locked the nursery in the veldt, he goes in there to relax, to feel like he's in a new environment, to escape whatever stresses or come down off a drug or whatever he's doing of his life. And I think maybe part of what Bradbury is addressing here is the difference in need that adults have with escapism and that children engage with and the real need for parents to understand and limit what their children are escaping into rather than giving them free reign to um, discover whatever they want to guide them rather than to let them be totally free in a tabula rasa sort of sense. That's certainly the tack that he takes in something wicked this way comes. And it, it seems like something that like, that's a, that's an obligation, a role, a responsibility of parenting that Bradbury thinks is a, a privilege. It's something awesome that you as a parent get to do. It's like the best thing that there is to do in life is the the point of view of the character I'm thinking of in this in this Bradbury novel. And that is he's the the he's a night and day opposite character of Mr. Hadley here in this story, who seems to have no interest in in that. He's not interested in what his kids are interested in. He's not interested in getting his kids interested in anything. It's he himself seems to be void to be kind of empty inside i mean does a lot of drugs three three different types of drugs at least and then plays video games uh by himself when the rest of the family's asleep it doesn't seem to have any deep inner life and maybe in the end that's the real problem because he himself is hollow he has no idea how to be how to how to show his kids to be anything other than that too and on some levels maybe bradbury is showing us that uh that society has kind of leached that out of humanity by solving every problem with technology they've stopped people who aren't engaged in that particular endeavor from feeling like they have a purpose and that's a net negative for everybody 
Well, I think that's a, a great note on which to, to close things out. So that's going to do it for this episode of Elder Sign. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us in our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. And please remember that if you're interested in Glenn and Valerie covering Star Trek Picard as part of our Lower Decks lineup, come over to Patreon and show us your support. Let us know that you want that show covered. We'd be so excited to do that show. And of course, we're so grateful for all the support that we receive. And hey, while you're on the internet, head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the the Velt. Uh, in particular, please weigh in on the question of who did the actual killing here? Did the lions actually come out of the screen? Or was it Wendy in the shadows the whole time? And although we didn't really call a whole lot of attention to it here near the end of the discussion segment, there's a little writing prompt, I think, that we've thrown out here too, which is... What would you do if you were going to rewrite this story, if you're going to update this story for 2019? We'd love to see that. I'd certainly be interested in it. Next time, we'll be back with The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, which was the biggest winner in our last Patreon vote. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>